Hi, it's me, your nominal host, Michael J. DeLuca. Today on the Reckoning Press podcast, we have for you Reckoning 7 nonfiction editor Priya Chand introducing and reading her Utopia-nominated essay on the destruction and restoration of habitats. This is the first in a series of what will hopefully be five episodes highlighting work from Reckoning 5 nominated for the inaugural Utopia Awards. The Utopia Awards, organized by Android Press as part of CliFiCon 22, will be up for public vote between August 1st and 21st, and winners will be announced at the conference in October. We really hope you'll listen and be inspired to vote. I'll include links to the voting pages here once they're live. My pitch for Priya's essay is as follows. She's doing what solar punk fiction projects, and she's encountering the complexities and conflicts of the real world making that work harder, more fraught. It's the work we all need to be doing. Follow Priya's example? Also, in case you've missed it, we're having a fundraiser. We'd love to pay everyone better and give more folks a chance to feel invested in this undertaking while making more cool stuff and amplifying more radical, revolutionary, restorative ideas. There will be rewards. Take this opportunity to support some anti-fascist, pro-environmental justice reckoning bling. Maybe win a personal critique of your writing from one of our editors, or encourage our staff to generate some bespoke educational content on how to make the world a more livable place from right in your own backyard or local biosphere preserve. Come on over to reckoning.press support us to learn more. Priya Chand majored in biology, with serious plans to never venture into fieldwork. She is now a volunteer steward with the local forest preserve, assisting primarily with the removal of invasive species. Her resume lists this as being a hobbyist lumberjack. Find her online at priyachandwrites.wordpress.com. Hello. Um, thank you for taking some time to listen to this. I hope it gives you a sense of how complex um, conservation really is, how many local factors need to be taken into consideration. Um, one thing I actually learned after writing this is that there are also some native species which are basically included for removal because they are so overgrown. Um, they're, they're functionally seen as invasives. And really, it goes back to all the ways in which the ecosystem has been disrupted over time. I, I also really hope this inspires someone to local action. There's a lot you can do to just support your local ecosystems. The Forest Preserve District wants me to cut down trees. With a saw in one hand and loppers in the other, I oblige. As a child, I got my destructive tendencies out in video games and martial arts. Beating all of my friends at Street Fighter and gloating about it was fine. Plucking flowers was not. Even the ubiquitous dandelions like tiny, weak suns in the lawn grass were meant to be seen and only pulled once transmogrified to puffball form, wanting dispersal. At the beginning of May this year, I ripped those vivid yellow heads off every single dandelion in my parents' yard, and then when more had bloomed the next day, I did it again. After I dumped the pile of them into the trash, I went to the little patch of trees across the street. The grass here was sparse. A bloom of mushrooms welled from the drying mud. I squatted down and took a minute to admire a single violet plant. Heart-shaped leaves framed purple flowers. The flowers are easily recognized, even when they aren't purple. The white ones are indigo streaked to lead in pollinators. But my favorite, for the irony and more, are the yellow violets. They are bright, though nestled close to the ground. 
and not as shiny as the five-petaled swamp buttercups that, as their name suggests, thrive alongside Illinois' transient and permanent wetlands. All these native plants and more, the mayapples, trillium, spring beauties, Dutchman's breeches, woodland's flocks, and those, by the way, are only the current season's more common flowers, evolve to thrive in specific conditions. Varying degrees of sunlight and wetness will even introduce variations within a species. The most vivid specimen of spring beauties I have ever seen, with shocking pink anthers that would put Barbie to shame, was about a minute after my sneaker filled with muddy water because of snowmelt on the unpaved trail. But I've also seen them growing in flocks in the grass, out in full sun, the characteristic pink lines on their petals faded to a more solemn hue. But none of these thrive in the presence of invaders. Garlic mustard pops up in the spring, leaves somewhat reminiscent of violets, with little clusters of four-petaled white flowers. The roots smell like garlic, which is how it got the name, and it generates chemicals that kill its neighbors. When I see it, I rip it out. It's not as persistent as dandelion. My family finds this very annoying when we're out walking, but how can I squander the privilege of this knowledge, this access to the woodlands? Before I found the local forest preserve, I joined whatever volunteer opportunities in habitat restoration came my way. Some of these included local youth. They came from various backgrounds, but the important thing was they were interested in the program, even when their destructive tendencies were less delicate than mine. One year, we were supposed to take a group of middle schoolers to plant trees in an impoverished neighborhood, which had had its nature overridden in concrete and scraggly grass. Of course, a group of middle schoolers and a few adults can't dig all the holes needed for oak saplings. So the plan was, if I remember correctly, for the community service workers to dig the holes, leaving the saplings with their root balls for the kids to plop in and cover with dirt. Satisfying, right? When we got there, there had been a mix-up. The holes were not dug, and there were only a few saplings. Unable to do anything, the leader improvised a plan, cleanup. We would walk around picking up trash. Dime bags the kids didn't understand, and we didn't explain. Thankfully, that time, no condom wrappers. And the litter of any place, even those where everyone has a reusable tote bag. Organic bars come in the same metallic wraps as their cheaper cousins. We came to a tree, a slim thing caged by its surroundings, spreading thin leaves despite the mound of cigarette butts around it. I'll never forget the look on the kids' faces. Why would people make such a mess right there? It was a learning opportunity to see the bar across the sidewalk and recall the order banning smoking indoors. Unintended consequences easily changed by being mindful of one's own behavior. They cared, and I hope still care. I hope that when they are adults out on field trips, they don't have to try to hide at the end of an otherwise excellent kayak up our man-made lagoons, surrounded by squawking birds and shy turtles and the sinuous movement of water gliders, in the middle of the clear summer sky, a blot of a cormorant dangling from a tree by the fishing line stuck in its throat. My pathetic diversion didn't work because these were curious kids with functioning eyes and senses attuned after a solid hour looking for animals. But it didn't stop them from continuing to participate 
in learning about and restoring nature. Not everything we do outside has to be a conquest. Buckthorn, like garlic mustard, is allelopathic. It releases chemicals that kill its neighbors. There was one morning where, I swear, the second the last virulent orange trunk hit the earth, the frogs struck up their song, sunlight warming the newly cleared space. Thankfully, buckthorn doesn't grow amid standing water, but it had been close to the edge. Well, it's incredibly satisfying to yell, Timber! As the creaking turns into a crash, the buckthorn isn't actually dead. The thing about invasives is they're not immigrants or foreigners. They are colonists. Killing their competitors is only the first step. They have to be able to grow and reproduce, too. As long as its roots are alive, buckthorn has the opportunity to send up whippy shoots en masse. When these have the opportunity to grow, they create a whole tangle that's hard to cut down, tangled trunks and branches, and of course, the thorns they're named after. The only solution is to destroy even the roots by painting a herbicide onto the trunks that will leach through. You may have heard of this one. It's called glyphosate. When it's not damaging farm workers and bees, Glyphosate is saving habitats by killing off the invasives that destroy them, the rare plants and animals which adapted to their niches over the course of millennia, only to be derailed by a succession of human introductions both intentional and otherwise. Paying extra for organic produce, living in a place with enough volunteers and staff to maintain the woods that release crisp, fresh air from their rich green leaves, the carpet of moss and grass and flowers underfoot attracting birds that sit up in the branches and trill away, with no consideration for an amateur photographer. It is easy to not understand why things like glyphosate still exist, are still used. But until there is another solution, our options are limited. We cannot go back in time to save that biodiversity before it ever became threatened, before the pale furl of a blue flag iris beneath its stiff, proud leaves became a rare event. We must move forward. Until there are better options, I will be in the forest, sowing down trees and pulling weeds with the other regular volunteers and student groups that still, in the middle of a million other assaults on nature, take the time to try and heal this piece. And you are invited.